Hi, everyone, and welcome to One Great History, a podcast all about the great and sometimes not so great stories from Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm one of your hosts, Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by our producer and friend, Nick. Happy season three, everybody. Woohoo! And we are back in person for the first time since I think last October. Yeah. So, That's pretty crazy. So it's been about a year. Yeah. <laughs> Give or take. <laughs> wow, it has been. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah, we're all vaxxed up and... Uh, Ready to party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ready it? to tell each other history stories. What was it? Waxed, vaxxed, and ready to party? Was that on the post I sent you on Instagram <laughs> the other day? Something like that. I think about that and laugh a lot. <laughs> but yeah, we're ready to tell you about history instead. But it's been a while since we've all like actually sat down and seen each other, so I thought it might be fun to just start with, like, what's going on? What have we all been up to in the past couple of months? Uh... I mean, I've been at home. <laughs> well, we all have been, yeah. Yeah, I've gone through two new jobs, I guess. Yeah. So that's a whole thing. And making a quilt? Uh, yeah, I'm making a murder mystery quilt. It's <laughs> <is> very cool. <laughs> it's probably the most Alex sentence. Yeah. It's fun. I got to do foundation paper, paper piecing last <laughs> month for any of my quilters out there. <laughs> for the first time, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, what have you been up to? I've been working for the most part, and that's been it. It's yeah, put a lot of hours into video games. I managed to somehow get strep throat. Right, yeah. Um, despite being right. like masked up at all times and yeah. not going anywhere, so that's some real. It's almost impressive that you got strep <sighs> in the middle of a pandemic when no one goes anywhere and everyone sanitizes everything. Yep. So I went to the doctor, and he looked inside my mouth and said that my tonsils were as big as watermelons. Okay. <laughs> Horrifying. Yeah not fun no that's bad but i'm all better now good yeah i'd hope so we wouldn't want to have you over. no <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't do too much i got really into perry mason for a bit yeah <laughs> <laughs> which i was watching today and actually took a two-hour nap nice. while watching perry mason <laughs> good old perry mason nap <laughs> new perry mason or old perry mason uh, old perry oh, mason. of course old. you're not gonna watch anything new no i watched the new perry mason it's just only like six episodes. Yeah. There's a lot of old Perry Mason. Yeah. It's easier to take a nap during a show where there's like many, many seasons of it. Many seasons. It's all kind of just like Raymond Chandler meandering. Or not Raymond Chandler. What's the guy's name? I don't know. I haven't seen Perry Mason. It's the guy from uh, Rear Window. Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Man, no, it's the bad guy from Rear Window. Okay. I know who you mean, but yeah. I don't know. Anyway. Name. Anyway. It's just him, like, meandering his way through crimes. It's okay. very comforting to have on. <laughs> I feel like Nick has had a more exciting time than we have, though. I got a kid's book out. Yeah, Nick wrote a book. Well, I illustrated a book. Well. Ace Burpee wrote the book. Right, yes. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Our pal Ace Burpee. Oh, it's right here. Yes, uh, you can take a look at it there. Um, there's also a music video. It's called The Beaver Book, uh, or The Beaver Song, if you want to find it on YouTube. But if you want to pick up a copy of The Beaver Book, Go go to wildlifehaven.ca or Virgin Radio's uh, building <laughs> office, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, all the proceeds go to uh, help Wildlife Haven. You remember buildings, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go yeah. to one of those. See if they have a book. You guys have left the house, right? Yeah, it's it's twenty bucks. Uh, it's a really fun little uh, book that I illustrated where Ace Burpee meets a bunch of beavers. It's adorable. It's very, it's very cute. It's very cute. Yeah. So you should go get that and support the beavers. Yeah. And support Nick, who worked very hard on this cute beaver book. <laughs> have you guys ever seen a beaver in person? I have. 
Yeah. Uh, the time I lost my keys in Pinawan, had to wait two <laughs> oh, yeah. hours for my mom to pick me up. I saw a beaver oh, while I was waiting so by the little, dam for little, my mom. Little consolation prize there. Not really. <laughs> I would have preferred to have my keys. I saw one at Buns Creek and didn't lose my keys, so I think that was a better, a better experience. You weren't stuck in Pinawa for no. like upwards of two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I was not. I've just seen beavers at the lake and stuff. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I was in the beaver scouts. Oh. And we had like a little like bucket hat and we had different levels and each level was a different beaver tail that you'd sew onto your hat. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like boy girl guides. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Interesting. That's cute. Yeah. Good times. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> I don't know. I've been also just sitting around watching TV and lots of drawing, lots of yeah, lots of creative stuff. But yeah, it's uh, it's really good to have you both here in the uh, quote unquote studio again. Yeah, I would say the energy is about as electric as it could possibly get <laughs> while doing a local history podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the one thing I got into more than just like watching old crime TV is like I read a lot of books before I had a job. I sat around and read constantly. Right. I've gotten very into Libby. The, yeah. Like the library app i've been right, yeah. listening to like an audiobook every couple of days for the past year <laughs> oh, wow. for a while there we were taking up the same books around the same time but you would just have the audiobook and i would have the real book yes and then we'd both read them too fast without taking a break yeah <laughs> every time now there were a couple where i'd be like well i'm gonna start reading at like 11 i'll read a chapter or two and then go to bed and then it would be like 4 a.m be like well i'm done the book but at what cost yeah <laughs> So I don't let myself read before bed anymore because oh my God. I ruined my sleep schedule at least five times. Oh, jeez. But uh, we're talking about books today, too. Fun. Yeah. But I'm probably the only one who has read these kind of books. Okay. Because they're Harlequin romance novels. I have read a Harlequin romance right? yes. novel. Yeah. <laughs> I read one. It was a Western one, too, wasn't it? No, it was... Um... Oh, I read a Western one. Never <laughs> That's me. Sabrina, we're different people, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we have different experiences in our With lives. Harlequin romance. Um, no, I read one that was like, there's a lot of back and forth kidnapping. Like yeah. a woman being kidnapped by two different people. Um, but one of them was handsome. So when he did it, it was okay. okay. Yeah, and that's, if you're ugly, you can't do anything. You can't kidnap people. <laughs> but if you're hot, fine. Yeah. Go for it. Kidnap everyone you want. She'll probably fall in love with you. Tale as old as time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Classic romance. But I feel like when we talk about Harlequin today, there's maybe a bit of a different idea of what it is. So, like, when I say Harlequin, what are you picturing? I know you've read a book, but... Okay, but I'll tell you what I was picturing before I read that yeah, one okay. Harlequin book. Yeah. So, I definitely would picture, like, the front cover with um, the man with no shirt. Yeah. Um, on Maybe on some cliffs. Yeah. <laughs> Buff, obviously. Um, holding a woman who's yeah. in some variety of a swoon. Yes. That is what I would picture. And I would imagine that it would be pretty raunchy. That was not my experience with a Harlequin No, book. because it's, as it turns out, that's not really what Harlequin is. Right. They're not that raunchy. Yeah. And no, I was super surprised. The one that I read, like, mentioned a nipple once. And then it was like, <laughs> it was the next day. They were yeah. like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's generally what it is today, too. Like, Harlequin is a pretty big deal. They're, like, one of the largest romance publishers in the world. Mm-hmm. They're not a small company by any means. And um, around 2008, they were selling four books a second on average. Wow. Like, they produce a lot of romance novels. Yeah. 
with the fun catch that their origin story isn't actually that romantic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Harlequin is founded in Winnipeg. Right, which is why we're talking yes. about it. <laughs> Not just because I got really into Harlequin over the pandemic and was like, <laughs> I need to foist this upon someone. That, I mean, that would also be believable. Yeah. No, but it's founded by a Winnipegger, Richard Bonnie Castle. Okay. So if you know uh, Bonnie Castle Park, the dog park on oh, Assiniboine. Yeah. Yeah. That's named for him. Well, I enjoy the park. Yeah. You might enjoy him, too. He's kind of an interesting guy. Okay. I'm a little disappointed that it's founded by a man, I have to say. Well, oh, we'll get into this. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot that happens with Harlequin. It's right. a real up and down roller coaster. So Bonnie Castle was born in Manitoba and Binns Carth in 1903. He goes to college in Ontario and then tours Europe as part of a university hockey team where he plays alongside future Prime Minister Lester Pearson. Oh. Yeah. Huh. So, like... Pretty, like, privileged upbringing for the most part. He travels around a lot, and then he gets a job with the Hudson's Bay Company, where he works for years. Mm. And he works up to a manager of Western Operations, where he spends his time traveling around the Arctic going on grand adventures. Huh. Okay. That kind of makes sense as an origin story for the guy who makes these books, I guess. Yeah. But while he's working with the Hudson's Bay Company, he meets his wife, Mary Northwood in Winnipeg. They both apparently were golfing at the same club. Ah. And just hit it off instantly. Rich people romance. Got Basically. It. But Mary Northwood is kind of a local celebrity in Winnipeg in the 1920s. She's young, she's pretty, and she's the daughter of architect George Northwood, okay. who is um, of the firm Northwood and Shivers. They designed the pavilion at Assiniboine Park. Oh. So, like, they're a prominent firm. They're a wealthy family. She's right. pretty well known. So are the Bonnie Castles. And, like, Mary Northwood's background is similarly privileged. She attends a private school, does a tour of Europe, hmm. and then uh, attends finishing school in Versailles. Wow. So they meet, they click, and they're set to be married in 1931. But a few weeks before the wedding, Richard sends Mary a telegram saying he's trapped on an ice floe <laughs> in Cape Belcher, and he isn't sure if he'll make it back in time. You know, that's a pretty good reason to not make it to your wedding. I would still be mad. Yeah. Uh, Mary just postponed the wedding, <laughs> okay. and he got there for November. <laughs> but, like, there are writings in his diary about how he's so stressed to not make it back to his own wedding because yeah. he got stuck in an ice floe. I mean, I'd be like, could you have timed getting on an ice floe a little better? But apparently not. He got <laughs> stuck. But they get married, and the Winnipeg Tribune called the pair two of the most popular of the young social set in Winnipeg. And there were numerous articles about their wedding oh, really? in the Winnipeg Free Press, including one just had pictures of the bridesmaids. Huh. So, like, this is a well-to-do, prominent family that's in this paper. And the wedding is well-liked, it's well-attended, and then the couple moves into the Royal Crest Apartments, and then... Uh, where is that? Do you know? No, but I can... I don't have internet. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know where that is. Okay. I assume someone out there probably does. I should have looked that up. 271 Wellington Crescent. Hey! Nailed it! <laughs> Good guess. Call, I know where rich families in Winnipeg live. <laughs> call Sussex Realty for more information. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're good. Yeah, I don't think I can afford that. No. So they move into this very nice Wellington apartment, and then George Northwood's finally like, maybe settle down. Mm -hmm. Stop traveling the Arctic, get a job in Winnipeg, and like, live with my daughter. Okay. So due to the pressure from his father-in-law, he takes a job in Winnipeg. Uh, and he works first as a lawyer and then with the com uh, Canadian Committee during World War II. Mm -hmm. And once the war wraps up, he gets offered a job as a managing director with Advocate Publishing. So he gets into the printing business. Okay. And then a couple years later, in 1949, Harlequin is founded with Bonnie Castle, Doug Weld, and Jack Palmer, who all sort of opted to get into the paperback industry. Right. I feel like we paperbacks are pretty common today. They were yeah. not, like, new in the 1940s. They've been around since, like, the 1700s. 
but they'd only really come into prominence in North America in the 1930s. Yeah. Mostly with stuff like, say, Penguin Publishing. Oh, yeah. Because as it turns out, in the Great Depression, it's really easy to just reprint popular books with a soft cover. Oh. With cheaper rights, cheaper printing costs. They right. sell them for less. I used to, I worked briefly as a library page when mm. I was like 18, and I hated putting away paperbacks. Because they're annoying, because they're soft. Yeah, they and they're they floppy. And yeah, they, and they're floppy, and they don't fit in nicely on the shelf. Yeah. So at the time, paperbacks were mostly like inexpensive reprints of older books. Right. And Jack Palmer, one of the founding members of Harlequin, uh, knows people with Curtis Circulating Company. This isn't like a thing anymore, but uh, Curtis Circulating was the group that would distribute stuff like the Saturday Evening Post okay, in the Ladies' Journal or right. Women's Home Journal. Oh, yeah. So like they're a big deal in getting things out there, mm. and they agree to back Harlequin. Hmm. So they've got like a distributor. They've got people who kind of know what they're doing. Palmer agrees to pick the titles and do the marketing, and Bonnie Castle's job is to just handle the printing. Right. But for Bonnie Castle, this was just a hobby. Okay. So, like, both his daughter and then his secretary were like, well, it's just something Dad wanted to do for fun for a bit. He didn't, like, plan on making money off of this. It was just huh. just for kicks. Right. So he didn't have shares in the company. Oh. So, okay. like, Palmer did. Yeah. And then Advocate Publishing held 50%. But Bonnie Castle had nothing. He was just in it. Huh. Just, like, hanging out, printing some books? Basically. So no one really knows where the name Harlequin comes from. People think it maybe came from Jack Palmer. They're not okay. sure. But the logo is Bonnie Castle. Ah. Do you guys know what the Harlequin logo is? Uh, no, not offhand. Is it a Harlequin? It's a Harlequin. <laughs> nice job. You win, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's a little diamond shape. Right. That looks a little bit like kind of a jester. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. So that is their logo. It's designed by uh, Bonnie Castle and his family, actually, at the dinner table. Oh. So Richard sketches out some designs and then brings his kids in and they each get to help pick what the Harlequin logo is going to look like. Oh, that's cute. And the logo is still used. Yeah. Like to this day, it hasn't really changed. It's still the one that Richard Bonnie Castle picked with his family. Right. Which is very sweet. Yeah. And then they got to pick out their first book. Okay. Which we've talked about in other episodes. We talked about it in, I think, our first episode. Yes, I remember what it's called. What is it called, Alex? It's called The Manatee. By Nancy Bruff. <laughs> I, I had a brief moment of anxiety where I was like, what if I say this so so <laughs> courageously and it is wrong? <laughs> I would love that. But you got it right. Yeah. So the Manatee's not a Harlequin original. It's a reprint. Okay. So it came out in 1945 and it was really popular. Right. It required seven reprints in 1945 alone. Wow. It's like it is a, a best-selling book by all accounts. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that the Harlequin would choose it. And what's notable about Harlequin's reprint is that it has the logo and a number on it. It is Harlequin number one. Ah. Which makes it a collectible. Okay. And Harlequin's books are still numbered. Okay. To this day. Huh. So they're on like many, many hundreds, if not thousands of books at this point. Yeah. But like going to the decades, like Harlequin number 58. Is the goal there to make people feel like oh, if I have one and, like, three and four, I'm missing one? Yeah, I think so. Like, it's now you want to have the set, right? You want right. to have all of the Harlequin yeah. books, which is kind of an interesting choice to go in out of the gate with. Right, that's pretty confident. Yeah. So uh, the manatee, for those who maybe haven't read this classic, <laughs> this classic Winnipeg text, is the robust, powerful novel. It's the story of Jabez Folger, a savage, romantic man of the sea with a sin sinister secret in his past. <laughs> Against the colorful background of Nantucket in its great whaling days, Nancy Bruff has set this bold, sweeping drama of vibrant love and corrosive hatred. Oh. 
On um, Folger's first whaling voyage, he had a dark and evil experience that changed and embittered his whole life. <laughs> In a rather softened mood, he courted and married Piety, a gentle Quaker girl, then deliberately, viciously murdered her love. Oh, okay. I thought I thought you were going to stop and murdered her. I was like, I didn't know that. That's... No. Okay. And then, born of this strange union, conceived in love and hate, their children turned to flowery shrine their half cast South Sea Island servant for the love and understanding they craved. Huh. Folger's vindictive cruelty brought about his ruin, but in doing so freed him from the evil demon that possessed his soul. The Manatee is a vivid, exciting, and compelling tale written in lusty, vigorous prose, oh. yet with exceptional power and beauty plated against the setting of sea, sky, and fabulous island. Okay, that sounds a lot more, like, flowery, I feel like, than, like, the Harlequin romance that I read. Yeah. It's it's a lot. Yeah. I found um, an alternative summary done by um, author Nicola White, who just sometimes rewrites old summaries. Okay. And she described it like this. This insane novel is a story of obviously unstable Jabez Folger, a savage racist man of the sea with a sinister secret in his past. The secret will turn out to be less sinister than you hope. <laughs> Against the repressed background of the Nantucket and its great whaling days, Nancy Bruff has set this bold, sweeping drama of emotional abuse and corrosive hatred. <laughs> That's pretty good. So it's a weird book yeah. from what we think of when we talk about like a romance novel or a Harlequin today. But by like a weird standard, the Manatee is technically a romance. Okay. There is a romance in it. Right. But a lot of the early Harlequin books just weren't. Okay. Harlequin did not get it started as a romance publisher. It was okay. just general publishing. So they would do reprints of like pulp thrillers and mysteries, some of which came out of magazines. The second Harlequin book was The Lost House by Frances Shelley Wees, which was a serialized novel in magazines that they then just printed. It was an eerie mystery in the Canadian North. That's, yeah, that's an interesting thing that we don't do anymore, Hayes, like the serialized novel. Like no. Treasure, were... Treasure Island was one of those as well. Oh. I think it was printed in, like, some kind of boys' adventure magazine. Was Sherlock magazine. Holmes not also partially serialized in? Oh, you might be right. That would make sense because yeah. it's, like, short stories, right? Yeah. So, yeah, back then you could read stories in magazines or even, like, the local papers on Sundays would have mm -hmm. just stories. Yeah. So you could buy those and then print them into books. Right. That's a fun cheat. <laughs> but um, a lot of their books sound intense or strange or just, like, bonkers. So I picked out three of my favorites. Okay. Um, one is The Wicked Lady Skeleton. <laughs> the next one is A Killer is Loose Among Us. Oh, no. And then Here's Blood in Your Eye. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Don't, don't like that. Nope. So there's also, like, some romances, like Honeymoon Mountain and Close to My Heart, but, okay. like, the tone is shifting very rapidly between books. There's not, like, a consistent gotcha. theme. And then they'll do, like, Agatha Christie reprints, some mm. sci-fi, westerns, and then one book that was shockingly violent. Oh. They do a reprint of No Orchids for Miss Blandish uh -huh. by uh, James Hanley Chase. This book was published in 1939. And a critic summed it up very neatly as, guys rubbed out, 22. Guys slugged bad, 16. <laughs> guys given a workover, 5. Dames laid, 5. Wow. <laughs> so the book had received criticism in 1939 for being, like, racy and violent. Uh -huh. They try and make it into a movie a decade later. It's also criticized for being both a bad movie and unnecessarily violent. <laughs> and then Harlequin reprints it in 1951. I mean, that, no press is bad press, yes, right? I guess. So all of these books are selected by Jack Palmer, who actually isn't from Winnipeg. He's based out of Toronto. Okay. So he'd pick the books and the titles and then send them to Winnipeg, and then Bonnie Castle will do all of the printing. 
And at first glance, it seems like Harlequin is doing really well in its first couple of years. They're selling in towns like Plum Coulee. Mm-hmm. The issue is that they're selling their books on consignment. Okay. And what that means is that retailers who hadn't paid in advance could then send back unsold copies. Oh. And they did. Mm. This is a move that apparently was almost unheard of in publishing at the time. Right. But they didn't sell. So Harlequin lost $80,000 in their first year. Oh, no. And they just kept losing money because right. Bonnie Castle was too busy to look at the finances <laughs> and just didn't. <sighs> to have that kind of money to be like, oh, my hobby publishing business is failing. But who cares? <laughs> who cares? <laughs> Throw some more money at it. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Maybe next year the Wicked Lady Skeleton will sell better. <laughs> so they're actually saved in 1950 when a number of local businessmen ship in $600 each. And then later in 1952, they merge Advocate and Stovall Publishing to firm Stovall Advocate. Okay. And then that keeps Harlequin afloat for a bit longer. Okay. But they hit another roadblock in 1952 when Jack Palmer dies. Okay. So he's the guy who chose all the books. Chose all the books. Did all of that work. And then um, he had 25% of the shares in the company and then had to handle all of the financial issues, which is then all passed on to Richard Bonnycastle, who now has to take on a much larger role in the company than he had before. Right. So Richard gets advice from the head of Curtis Distributing saying, just do like a book a month. Just mm-hmm. like keep printing and like we'll get through this. And then he gets another 25% of the shares back because the shareholder is just like, I don't want these. This oh company God. is failing. Take my shares. <laughs> so Richard keeps some, but he gives the other 25% to his secretary, Ruth Palmore. Okay. So Ruth has been his secretary by 1952 for a number of years. She uh, joined him when he started working for the Canadian Committee during World War II. So Ruth Palmer is um, a Winnipeg graduate of like an industry school hmm. in the daughter of an insurance salesman. She made um, $125 a month working okay. for Bonnie Castle. The uh, monthly salary on the time for like minimum wage would have been about 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. So she's like making good so, money. Yeah. With... And apparently her boss just gives her shares of companies yeah. sometimes. Well, apparently like when he left the Canadian committee, he went for lunch with Ruth later and was like, join me with like advocate. Right. And she said, okay. Yeah. And then slowly got like groped into this Harlequin business. Right. So she's making money and she's, Spending a lot of her life with Harlequin, most of her career is spent at Harlequin, essentially running the company, because Bonnie mm. Castle is not... She just doesn't care. Yeah, basically. And what is also kind of interesting is that Palmer never gets married hmm. at any point. She just works for Harlequin, and that's what she does. Hmm. In um, a book about the history of the company, the author interviewed uh, Richard Bonnie Castle's daughter, Judy, who speculated that maybe Ruth was in love with her dad. Yeah. But, like, also maybe she just wanted just to... Just like a career woman, maybe. Yeah, like, who knows? But there's no Harlequin today without Ruth Palmer. There's no oh. way around that. Yeah. Because Ruth is the one that notices what books are selling and which ones aren't. Ah. A thing that Bonnie Castle was not paying so attention to. So is it to. not the Wicked Lady skeleton that's Would selling? you believe people are not buying the grotesquely violent thrillers? <laughs> hmm. So, in 1950, the books Gambling on Love and Portrait of Love both sell out. Okay. But um, Murder Over Broadway and Speak of the Devil had returns over 50%. So, like, they're coming back more than they're selling. Right. Palmer's the one that notices this and then tells Bonnie Castle, like, this is what's selling. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should do more of that. And he's, like, kind of listening. But what helps is that a different woman in his life is also telling him (laughs) that uh, his violent books aren't selling. So, like, a woman's opinion is worth, like, half of one opinion, basically. Well, the other opinion here is his wife. (laughs) Okay, so that... (laughs) It's worth, like, three quarters of a man's opinion, then. Basically. So, Mary Bonnie Castle um, gets involved in Harlequin early on as well, because the team at the start was just Richard and Ruth. 
Mm-hmm. So Richard Bonnycastle asks his wife for help reading and editing books that they're getting in. And Mary hates the books she's getting. She <gasps> hates them so much. Oh, no. So she threatens to stop reading the books Jack Palmer is sending. She's oh. like, I won't read these violent books. Right. And then one day, Bonnycastle complains about poor sales. Yeah. And his wife goes, why do you think that is? <laughs> Oh, man. And then he goes, like, I don't know. And she points out that the only good books they're printing are the romance novels. Right. I would, so, I would guess that today the primary consumers of, like, paperback novels and probably novels in general is women. It would depend, I think, probably on genre, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that was the case then. No, I mean, I think they're, like... It might have been. Stuff like sort of pulpy, like, thrillers would have been popular in the... 40s and 50s but maybe more in like magazine form than yeah. in book form and hmm. yeah i don't know why the market was the way it was but yeah but the regardless, romances were what we're selling they were apparently just flying off the shelves and both ruth and mary noticed and told him this mm-hmm. so once jack palmer dies they need more help essentially so richard goes back to his wife and then asks her to work as an at-home editor and she agrees but says i'll have nothing to do with those sex books <laughs> So she puts her foot down. Okay. And, like, they weren't only doing weird sex books. They also did, like, historical romance and then how-to books on cooking and knitting. But okay. she was specifically saying she didn't want to read any more of the violent thrillers he kept bringing gotcha. by. Yeah. But um, they also published the first two novels by Brian Moore, who I don't know if anyone's going to know off the top of their head, but... Moore is um, a Northern Irish author who moved to Canada and wrote thrillers initially. And his first two books at Harlequin were Wreath for a Redhead and The Executioners. Oh. Which is about a fast-talking Canadian adventurer versus imported ruthless killers. <laughs> so Moore wins uh, the Canadian Governor, Governor General's Literary Award twice. Hmm. Of interest probably to Alex and I, uh, Moore wrote the screenplay for an Alfred Hitchcock movie, Torn Curtain. But uh, Hitchcock and Universal Studios hated the script so much they had it punched up by other writers. <laughs> but... Past, like, this point, once Palmer dies, Ruth and Mary take on a bigger role as management, and those books kind of peter out. So following Palmer's death, Ruth is the one who writes to publishers to get sort of permission to reprint. And then, once selected, they would be passed on to Mary for editing and approval, and then they could be published. And apparently, Mary would do all of her reading while knitting in her home. Oh, that's nice. It's a pretty sweet job. By 1955, Harlequin's doing one romance novel a month. And had actually begun advertising their other novels in the back pages. So, like, you see on a paperback day where it's like, check out these other books. Right. They're in print. You can order them or whatever. But there was one uh, romance genre in particular that was doing really, really well for Harlequin in the 1950s. Okay. And that is the medical romance. Oh. Yeah. That is not what I would have guessed. No. Um, apparently, it was a hit genre in the huh. 1950s. Okay. I mean, there is the classic thing that, like, oh, women love doctors or whatever. Mm-hmm. So... It's a really weird subgenre. Like, right. I read a lot of romance novels. There's not as much like medical romance today that I bump into. Yeah. But you see it coming up more and more sort of in the post-war period. Mm-hmm. Possibly because there are more and more women working out of the home. I was just going to ask if it was that. It's kind of like that or like the secretary and the boss, right? Or like yeah. the two kind of workplace romance yeah. settings for women. So probably what it is is that like if you're reading a romance prior to, say, 1940, it's going to be more like the woman's in the home or sort of like a well-to-do woman. Mm-hmm. There's not as many like relatable workplace novels oh, for yeah. women because that wasn't where women were, generally yeah. speaking. And then 
even going into the post-war period, there's a select number of jobs that are acceptable for women, mm -hmm. and then an even smaller number that are, like, sexy. <laughs> right? Right. I guess, like, working in a factory. Eh. You're too tired to have a romance. Yeah. Or, like, being a teacher. Where are you going to bump into, like, a handsome, eligible man? Right. At a job that's primarily women that doesn't let you get married. Right. So... Doctor nurse romance has become more and more popular, and then women's magazines really take part in this, and they actually start reassuring women that romance is a part of your nursing adventures. <laughs> and a step was to find a doctor husband. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, like, the genre's not dead by any yeah. means. Like, Grey's Anatomy is still on TV, and I would clock oh, that yeah. as a medical romance. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's not, like, uh, doctor nurse anymore, it's doctor doctor. 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 But, yeah. like, there's that same level of fascination right. for, like, the medical community. Right. Which is interesting, right? Yeah. I wonder what that is. If it's just like maybe maybe the idea is that a doctor is like somehow a passionate person kind of by default. Maybe. Like there's someone who's. You're saving lives. Like and maybe like a man who cares but not in like a feminine way. Does that make yeah. sense? I don't know. It's... I mean, I know that's problematic, but like. Well, I mean, all of this is very problematic. Yeah. Like what we're not talking about is all these books are generally sexist and racist depending on where they're set and there's not a lot of like diversity in the novels it's right. generally speaking or almost universally speaking a heterosexual white couple yeah <laughs> that's affluent yes generally speaking but this is the genre that's selling and the british company mills and boone had really started to make a name for themselves with nurse doctor romances over in the uk they've been publishing those since the 1930s and it's a Mills and Boone novel that actually really catches Ruth and Mary's attention in Winnipeg. Okay. I think I've heard of Mills and Boone. They're still around, yeah. kind of. So apparently what happened is both women had gone to the library and Ruth had run to someone at work who was like, oh, have you read this like romance novel from Mills and Boone? Mm -hmm. And they both are like, oh, who is this? <laughs> and they start like finding more Mills and Boone books and they're everywhere in the Winnipeg libraries because mm. their books are popular. Right. And Mills and Boone is much older than Harlequin. They were founded in, like, 1908 in England. Okay. But like Harlequin, they were a general publisher at first. So they would do, like, Shakespeare, socialist texts, textbooks, whatever they wanted, basically. <laughs> Their first book, though, was actually a romance called Arrows in the Dark by Sophie Cole. And Cole wrote 60 Mills and Boone books. Wow. Before 1960. Some people just have a lot of books in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um... Mills and Boone, like Harlequin, has a rough financial start because they're founded right before World War One. Oh yeah. When all of their executives get scooped up to serve in the war effort. Oh no. So, um, Charles Boone, one of the founders, his sister starts overseeing the company. Huh. And um, she was politely noted as not being known for her business sense. <laughs> so, for some reason, Margaret Boone orders two hundred and fifty thousand copies of Jack London's Valley of the Moon. <laughs> <laughs> which don't sell. Oh, no. You might know uh, Jack London as the author of Call of the Wild, mm -hmm. which is that Harrison Ford movie that just came out with the weird... <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I like how that's how you know I it. Did, I did not know that there was a Harrison Ford movie. But. I, I mean, I knew the book beforehand, but I think anyone who is younger or maybe not into, like, old books... Yeah. It's the weird CGI dog movie with Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah, I remember it as being, like, a book with a cover with, like, a wolf on it. <laughs> yeah. Against all odds, though, Mills and Boone hang on past this. And then they start publishing medical romances by the 1920s, and that becomes a staple for them by the 30s. But one of the more fun things I found out about the company is that prior to the 1930s, a lot of the books didn't have covers. Oh. They were just nondescript brown books. 
Okay, that makes sense. I have some older books yeah. and they're generally like that. Yeah, and they would stock them in bookstores mm-hmm. and like they would have these little rental libraries at drugstores in the UK and women that would go to them regularly would take out a book and then actually mark the back to know which books they'd taken out and which ones oh. they hadn't. Yeah. That's fun. By uh, the 1940s, Charles Boone's kids, Alan and John, had taken over a larger role and they were really starting to focus more on women as their target audience. Mm-hmm. So they're finding writers from women's magazines, they're turning more serialized romances into books. And by this point, they were pretty much entirely a romance publishing house. And this is just not, like, relevant to us, but I think it's interesting as someone that watches a lot of romance movies and reads a lot of romance novels. Um, Around this time is when a new technique comes out called M-I-N-O, or Marriage in Name Only. Okay. So it's developed by Winifred Johnson, and it is basically fake dating. It's like a couple will, like be the have the pretense of being married without actually being married so you can get away with some more like risque behavior without like breaking social norms right so that comes about in the 1940s okay and around this time alan boone who was in charge of editing develops two rules for a good romance novel they're called nature's law and lubbock's law (laughs) okay one is a better name than the other yep and one is deeply problematic great (laughs) can i guess which one it is which one i think that lubbock's law is problematic Oh, and you're wrong. Am I wrong? It's nature's law? Nature's law is that the romantic interest must be an alpha male. Strong, brave, mentally and physically tough, intelligent, (sighs) tall, and dark. I hate it. Yeah. Okay, I also only found out embarrassingly recently that tall, dark, and handsome refers to, like, a man being brunette and not, like... (laughs) (laughs) I, like... I figured that old romance novels didn't have, like, black men in them, because, of course, (laughs) problematic and awful. But, like, I thought maybe it was, like, olive-skinned men. I don't know. (laughs) Alex. (laughs) I was incorrect. You were very incorrect. Uh, Lubbock's Law is just the story has to be from the woman's point of view. Oh, okay. That's fine. That's pretty standard. It's not quite as weird as, like, the man has to be tough. Yeah. Like, trucks or whatever else. (laughs) So they become, like, a huge deal, and their books wind up everywhere, including in Winnipeg, which is where Ruth and Mary both run into them. And they both actually find the same book, which is called Hospital Corridors by Mary Burchell, and it's actually set in Montreal. And then, on May 8th, 1957, Charles and Alan Boone receive a letter from Winnipeg. Okay. The letter reads, Dear Sirs, we are looking for light romances dealing with doctors and nurses for publication in our Harlequin line of paper-covered pocket-type books. And wonder if Canadian reprint rights of any of your books of this type might be available to us. Our royalty rate is 1.4 cents per copy sold in a 35 cent edition with an advance royalty of $200 payable on publication. Our initial printings of uh, nurse and doctor romances are presently 25,000 copies. If you're interested in submitting books to us, we'd be glad to receive copies of some of your nurse titles. Mary Birchall's Hospital Quarters might be particularly suitable to Canadian readers, as I understand it is set in Montreal. Yours truly, Ruth Palmer, Secretary, Harlequin Books. Hmm. And this is the beginning of an extremely un- informal and very unusual partnership. Okay. So the Boons are like, yeah, okay, we'll send you the rights. Right. And then they're like, great, we'll print them. But then no one finalized who actually had the North American printing rights. Oh. And both parties just assumed that Harlequin had them. Like, there was no official agreement. Huh. It was just the letter from the secretary. Well, then Richard Bonnycastle flies out to England to have dinner with them. Okay. They shake hands. That's the deal. Gentlemen's agreement. And that's how they renew the deal every year. (laughs) Richard flies out. They shake hands. Richard goes home. Such rich man nonsense. (laughs) 
And then one day, John Boone's like, I'm going to go to Winnipeg and visit. And sees possibly the weirdest operations possible. Right. Because what he walks into is a very small organization made up of Ruth, yeah. Richard, and one other person. <laughs> and John notes, I thought he was ashamed of it. Oh. And then adds, the printing was carried out in an extremely effective part of the plant run by an immigrant who refreshed himself at regular intervals by drinking from a bottle of Jack Daniels. Huh. <laughs> so it's just like three people and a drunk guy. Right. Printing these romance novels. Huh. But the partnership works, and then in 1959, they print their first joint copy. Okay. Which is a book I read. Okay, and what book is it? It is called The Hospital in Bowambo. In Bowambo, okay. Where's that? It's uh, in Nigeria. Okay. Um, can, I, can I guess that the book is about a white couple still somehow? Oh, you are correct. <laughs> um, the book is weird. Okay. Like, the premise on the face is super familiar it's like a doctor has her heart broken by a colleague and then takes a job posting somewhere far away to like get away from her heartbreak that's okay so many romance novels yeah. today or like eat pray love like it's right you go somewhere new to find yourself mm -hmm. so she takes a job in this remote hospital in Bowambo, where the main doctor is this grouchy guy who doesn't want a female mm -hmm. doctor of course but uh, the plot twist is that the reason he didn't want a female doctor is because he was scared he would fall in love with her. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then does he? He does. Ah. But there's just, like, a lot of, like, the pacing is the weirdest thing I've ever read, where, like, things just keep happening, and they keep adding in new characters. I had to make a flowchart to keep track <laughs> of, like, who was maybe dating who at different okay. points. And of note, everyone involved in, like, the weird love triangles, they're all white. Of course. There are black characters, some of whom are, like, doctors in the, like, small village. Mm -hmm. But none have, like, interesting character arcs. They're just kind of there. Yeah. I'm not shocked. No. But um, the weirdest side plot in the entire book is that the grumpy doctor hires the main character, a blind houseboy, to help her with stuff around the house. But this way he won't be able to see her. What? No, I know. <laughs> this does not make sense on it at the start. And then... Presumably she's perceived by other people on a daily yeah, basis. But not in her private quarters. Right. I, I shall not have my woman perceived. Basically, right? That's the whole thing. And then <laughs> it's kind of implied that like she's tempted to go into ocular surgery to fix this blind boy's eyesight. Okay. But then he just gets hit by a car so hard his <gasps> eyesight comes back. Oh. <laughs> and then he's fine. Okay. And then after he gets hit by the car on the way back to the village... They get lost. And he goes, I can find my way back if you blindfold me because I don't know how to navigate by sight. <laughs> That's very silly. It is one of many things that happened in this book. <laughs> That's not the direction I was expecting that to go. No, I never knew what was happening or when. There's just a guy that comes in periodically who's in love with the main character but doesn't do anything about it. Right. It's just like around... I, yeah, huh. I mean, that's more interesting than I was expecting. It's really weird. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'd recommend it or not. It was. Did, did this, like, house servant not know that he could close his eyes? <laughs> was that not an option? I don't know. She had to blindfold him <laughs> and send him loose into the jungle. <laughs> oh, no. They don't say his age, but he's called a house boy, so I assume he's not, like, a grown man. I don't know that I would assume that. No, but also, I don't know. Everything yeah. about it is so strange. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay, so that 
Did that sell well? Uh, yeah, it did really well. Okay. Shockingly. Oh, also, fun note, the reason he's, like, grumpy and tortured is that once he got so mad, he punched a wall and broke his hand and can't do surgery as good anymore. <laughs> I mean, you reap what you sow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that is the first partnership book ever published by them. Okay. It does well. And they keep working together for the next, like, number of years. This is, like, a very long-term and, I would say, like, powerful partnership. Right. And, like, locally, Ruth is still in charge of acquiring all the printing supplies. She works with Toronto and Winnipeg artists to design the book covers. And then once she'd picked all of it out, she'd send it home with Richard, who would then have Mary read everything over and approve it or deny Mm it. And Mary would make notes of what she wanted and what she didn't. My throat is getting drier and drier. Oh, no. I've been talking for this long in a while. Yeah. So Mary's notes were often things just like, will do, or no. (laughs) But sometimes she would go into greater detail. One of her notes once read, unpleasantly unkind to plain nurses. After all, most of our readers are not beauties. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mary. (laughs) Yikes. Like, it's almost nice. Yeah, like, at first I was like, okay, standing up for the nurses, but... uh... But it's like, no, also our readers aren't pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then another note she wrote was, wrong approach to African natives, too dependent on charity, not good in modern times. Huh. So, like, there's some level of, like... okay. ...what is progressive, but then, like, also, these are all still, like, background characters that, like, interesting personal arcs. So, (laughs) it's better than it could have been, but it's still not great. This is why I like consuming old media, because I can only ever be pleasantly surprised when they're not 100% terrible. No, you just assume the bar is in the literal ground. Exactly. Like, oh, it wasn't actively hateful? Wow. <laughs> yeah, whereas <laughs> if I watch a thing now, and it's not as good as it could be, I'm like, There's no excuse. Yeah, you, you need to know now. Yeah. But she would also, like, cut things out, so she would cut out swearing if it offended her. <laughs> and she would sometimes change, like, villain, or villain origin stories. So, okay. for example, if there was a French-Canadian villain, she would just change it to something else because it wouldn't sell as well in Canada. Ah, So it's right. just, like, changing place names or whatever. It's yeah, that makes sense. Not like, too crazy. It's like um, localization or whatever. Yeah, basically, it's that, but with n- a d- nurse-doctor romance novel. Right. <laughs> I was going to call it, like, Noctor Durst. Noctor Durst. <laughs> and almost came out of my mouth there. But things start to change a little bit getting closer to the 1960s because Mill, the Boone started to think that maybe their books could be sexier. Okay. A little more raunchy. And then Mary keeps editing out all of the raunchy stuff. <laughs> Mary. So that she, it would get to her and she would be like, nope, no, no can do. And then one day, a steamier book gets past Mary accidentally. It gets in the hand of an Anglican archbishop in Winnipeg. Oh, no. Who then brings it to Richard and complains that it's too racy. He caught his parishioners reading it and he's not happy. Oh, Mary's going to be so embarrassed. She was. And then she only let the occasional damn through. Okay. <laughs> so she really cracks down. <laughs> Oh, man, I love that the archbishop, like, came to the headquarters and was like, get this sex book out of our community. Yeah, get this out of my pews. And, like, I don't know how steamy it would have been. They're not doing, like, in-text sex scenes in books yet, really. Right. That's, it may have just been, like, a steamier kiss. Huh. Which is bizarre. What I'm I'm imagining, too, is that, like, parishioners, they got the Bible in front of it. (laughs) And they're reading the Harlequin romance romance behind it. like. Uh, Like a kind of, like, more literary footloose. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but then um uh richard bonnie castle's daughter judy starts helping her mom out with editing and judy is actually way stricter okay so judy rejects about a quarter of the suggested Milton <gasps> boone titles and she would say they just weren't suitable for publication or this book is ridiculous 
And this would slowly drive the boons insane. I mean, I kind of love them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They know what they want. Right. And they're not afraid to tell anyone no. And look, Richard Bonnie Castle is apparently totally hands off. He doesn't care. So someone's got to say no. (laughs) Yep. And then, like, part of the issue going on in the UK is that authors are starting to go, are the boons even reading our books? Oh, yeah. So, like, what they find out is happening is that Alan Boone is maybe reading the first and the last page. Okay. And not the middle. <laughs> and she's like, this just looks like a book. Good. That reminds me of how I read a lot of books in, in university. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I'm going to read the index and then we're good. Yeah. So there Index were, chapter titles, we're, we're done. There are a number of fights between authors where they're like, well, you didn't catch this like obvious mistake. At one point, someone says, like, a paddle sinks. Right. And a guy calls me, he's like, well, a paddle floats. <laughs> like, did you not catch this? Okay. So I hate that guy. <laughs> he's not reading. Yeah. He's not reading the books. And then... Boone was more tolerant of sex scenes, maybe because he just wasn't reading them. Okay. But then Judy and Mary are still, like, scrapping them every time. So, at this point, I feel like these two women are responsible for what gets read by a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of, especially, like, local Winnipeggers who want to support, like, a local publishing house. Yeah, um, Judy and Mary have all the say in what comes and what goes. And apparently no one in England is even reading them. (laughs) No, apparently not. So, um, in 1967, Mills and Boone publishes The Garden of Persephone by Nan Asquith. And um, this book actually has a scene with described sex. Oh, my. Not just fading to black. And, shockingly, the racier books sold well. It's shocking. So, um, apparently, in Winnipeg, a warehouse worker recalled having to go restock book displays at Eaton's multiple times a week. Wow. So, he would come in the morning, he set up a display of about 100 books... And then have to come back later on and just add more. Huh. And the ones that were selling faster were the racier ones. Right. But medical romances were still the most popular. They apparently had like an 85% sell-through rate. <laughs> and probably what really helped them here is that uh, Lloyd Astin of Curtis Distributing was still helping them distribute the books. So like they're still behind them like 20 years later now. Right. And... Curtis Distributing was kind of a terror in the publishing industry. Okay. Like, if they wanted something to happen, it would happen. They actually caused the death of a magazine, essentially. Oh, my God. So there's this magazine called True Story. It's a true crime magazine. It is inexplicably very popular in Saskatchewan. <laughs> like, it had the highest per capita readership there. Okay. Weird. And Curtis Distributing didn't want it to sell. They were trying to sell Harlequin there. Right. And they basically forced True Story out of the market by just pushing Harlequin on so many retailers. Huh. And they were too afraid to say no to Curtis Distributing. Right. So Harlequin takes its place. True Stories is also, like, weird. Because it's some, like, crime stuff. But then it was kind of a confessional. Okay. So people, like, write in, like, scandalous True Stories. Right. Which people still like doing today. Oh, but yeah. they had a pretty, like, standard formula of sin, suffer, and repent. Where a woman would be like... I committed a crime or like a moral like issue right. and then I have suffered and here's how I'm better now. Okay. So, so it's like racy but acceptable maybe? Yeah, because the person has a bad time because of the racy thing right. they did. But then what you can actually do is just read the first bit. And then skip, and then skip <laughs> the suffering yeah. and you're good. So Curtis Distributing basically gets them off the market and then Harlequin becomes a bigger deal in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. So they're growing in Canada but they haven't really grown in the States yet. Mm-hmm. And then they actually reach out to some uh, retired reps from Curtis Distributing in the States a little bit later on. So Richard reaches out in 1963 in an attempt to do American expansion. 16 states are selected, and they're selling books there for about 40 cents a copy. 
they do so well that Simon and Schuster's pocketbook started selling them in other states. Okay. So like they're expanding in America, and uh, Richard's son, whose name is also Richard. Okay. But his nickname is Bones. What? <laughs> Why? Um, possibly because of Bonnie Castle. Oh, okay. That or makes sense. because of a tackle he did when he played football in St. Patel. Or because he got bones. Maybe. He does have bones. Right. We so. know that about him for sure. <laughs> so Bones helps this campaign and is really trying to like push it out. But before Simon and Schuster started publishing them, before they'd done well in the States, Bones had gone up and said, will you print these? And they said, no, we couldn't do covers these bad. <laughs> because here's the thing. The colors of Harlequin romance novels are strange. Like, okay. we talked about the start of like, romance novel covers being like that like shirtless man yeah. with the long hair and the big muscles and a woman swooning mm-hmm. that is not what this is at all right and in fact as a book cover that only really comes around the 1980s mm-hmm. that's a whole thing called the clinch okay the clinch yeah like clinching the deal kind of ah. and it's like a pretty popular thing in the 80s and onwards but it's not so much in the 1960s right and harlequin covers even then were bad okay so in the early years they're doing more eclectic stuff to match sort of the weird publishing they're doing so for about a decade they'd have 34 artists sort of on retainer most of them were canadian they were stuff like norm eastman uh paul anasoik burn smith will davies and they were all pulp artists okay so every single one of them was a pulp magazine illustrator interesting so when you look at their old covers and i'll show you some they're pulp magazine covers huh and you can tell okay like you're gonna this is a Oh, yes. I I see exactly what you mean. Do you want to explain what it is? Okay. So this one is called Pardon My Body, (laughs) a rough expose of the American underworld. And it is a woman who's technically wearing a dress. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So so she's got um, a red dress on, which is fitting her body in a way that dresses, in fact, do not. Nope. Um. One shoulder is off, and then the bottom is kind of, like, torn, and you can see, like, the top of her garter, and she's holding a gun. Yeah. So very pulpy, for sure. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, like, that is probably not something that, like, say, a housewife, I would say, would buy and want to be seen reading. (laughs) No, no, definitely not. They're all kind of like that, like... Oh, yes, okay. This one is called House in Harlem, which is, again, about two white people. I don't... Okay. Um... There's a man coming in in a suit. Uh, you just see the back of him, this blonde guy. And then there's a woman kind of reposed on a on a chaise here. And with her hand in front of her mouth, I think. Or, I don't know. They all look like She's Lauren just lounging. Yeah. <laughs> She's lounging, but like looking a little scared, but like sexy scared. Yeah. You also missed the tagline for this book, which is a sight for sinister doings. Oh, no. Yeah. So like they're weirder book covers because they're pulp magazine covers right but then they sort of transition out of that and start doing these like stiffly posed couples on sort of cardboard backdrops oh it's very like chaste looking compared to what you think of with a romance novel now okay so we maybe need some kind of middle ground here like okay Um, flight to the stars okay so flight to the stars is yeah it's a man and a woman in what looks like a plane just kind of leaning against each other and they look happy and the woman's kind of napping. They're fully clothed. They're fully clothed. They're not close to kissing. Uh, no one is lounging. No, there's not like a lot of like scandalous stuff like, happening. That looks like a married couple. Yeah, but they're probably not. <laughs> like a happily married couple, but mm. not a racy couple. So yeah, people did not like these. They were apparently an art designer's nightmare. Okay. And 
Ruth Palmer just refused to stop using the same artists. Oh no. So they just kept doing those. <laughs> and you can actually kind of compare it to Mills and Boone when they start doing the same books. Because it's the same titles. Okay. But they're handling them very differently. Right. So this is a book called Brittle Bondage. This is the Mills and Boone cover. Okay, Brittle Bondage. So we've got uh, a man, tall, dark, and handsome, um, in kind of like a loose-fitting suit. And then a woman uh, in like a sleeveless dress behind him with her arms kind of outstretched like over his shoulders. Yeah. It's like a little racy, but like not super. No. Like not over the top. No, but then this is what Harlequin did with that same cover. Oh, that, okay. That is really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the Harlequin one is... Two women's faces and then a man's face. And that's about all I can say about yeah. that. Nick, you can see it, maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it looks like a Hardy Boys mystery or yeah, something. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was making me think of. It looks like a Nancy Drew. Yeah, but it's not. It's supposed to be there's hypothetically nothing, a romance novel. There's nothing there that tells me what it's about, either. Yeah, and then they start, like, they'll try and make their models look a bit like famous actors. So, like, the cover of Royal Bondage, the guy looks a bit like Sean Connery. Yes. Yeah. And then there's one called The Strange Countess where it's just supposed to be, it looks like Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, like, they're trying to do some kind of, like, contemporary sex appeal thing. Right. But the covers aren't always the greatest and they're not specifically well-liked. And then they just don't bother changing them until the 80s. Until okay. they kind of have to. I mean, I guess it sounds like they stay in business anyway. So. They keep going. But, like, it's not Harlequin that develops the clinch or, like, the sexy romance cover. That is not right. them. They have to adapt to a marketing change. Yeah. So that's interesting that that's, like, the kind of cultural image of that when that's yeah. not really their thing. Oh, absolutely nothing to do with them. But after Harlequin takes off in the States, Diamond and Schuster are like, oh, fine, we'll, like, distribute your books. Yeah. Whatever. And at this point, Harlequin is still kind of a hobby for Richard Bonnycastle, despite, like, the rapid growth, the big yeah. partnerships. He would look at the accounts once a month. And then let Mary, Ruth, and Judy do their own thing. Hmm. So what Bonnie Castle did instead was work on local pet projects. So um, he had a seat on the board of Ducks Unlimited. He became the chairman later. He was president of the Chamber of Commerce, chancellor at the University of Winnipeg, and then chairman of the Metropolitan Council of Greater Winnipeg. Hmm. And he also got his pilot's license. Oh. So the uh, Council of Greater Winnipeg is kind of a thing that we don't talk about so much anymore. Um... He had to manage a group of 19 mayors and reeves that would also become Winnipeg later on. Because okay. prior to 1973, stuff like Transcona and St. Boniface were towns. Right. With their own mayors, part of like a greater Winnipeg area. Mm-hmm. So it was Bonnie Castle's job to manage them. Okay. And try and like negotiate and keep everything working. Interesting. And he's doing... So he's like a mediator of sorts? Kind of, yeah. That... Okay. He made a 12 grand a year doing it. Hmm. So not like a huge amount. Right. But... It was more of like a public good thing. More of like maybe like a prestige legacy yeah, thing. I don't know. I think know. so. It's not like he needed the money. Yeah. And then there's a lot of like exciting family stuff going on. Judy Bonnycastle gets married in 1968 to a television producer. And then once Judy is married, Richard Bonnycastle takes off on another adventure. Okay. So he uh, gets his pilot license. He and must this be getting t- up there in years by this point. Yeah. I don't know how old he was exactly. Anyway, but. He was born in 1903. So 60s? Okay. Yeah. So he is actually trying to retrace his path from where he used to work with the HBC. Okay. So he's like dog sledding and boating and flying. And he dies of a heart attack in the middle of the journey. Oh, no. Um, after docking his float plane in Lake Winnipegosis. So he lands the plane, keels over, and dies. Oh, geez. Yeah. 
500 people attend his funeral. Wow. And in the countless obituaries written for them, not a one mentions Harlequin. Oh, really? Like, that is not a thing in his huh. legacy at all. I guess if he just didn't care about it. Not at all. Yeah. It wasn't his thing, right? Right. Hmm. But at that point, his son, Richard or Bones, takes over. And Richard also didn't have that much of an interest in Harlequin. Mm-hmm. He hadn't really wanted to take it over. He'd offered to buy shares when he was, like, a teenager and was told, no, hmm. you're a kid. And then he does other non-Harlequin projects, but he got into horses and actually opened a Harlequin ranch oh. out in Alberta. And the horses for that uh, for the ranch had the little diamond pattern on their, like, coats. Oh, that's cute. So some fun family branding. And he also did a couple, like, poorly managed athletic wear companies, like, he wasn't great at business at the okay. onset, so he learned by <laughs> failing, which is a thing that only, like, Only rich, rich people get to do. Yeah. But. Well, only rich people get to do more than once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he tanks a company and then gets handed a different company. Right. But he is the one that starts to think that maybe the deal with Mills and Boone is a little flaky. Okay. And he had been trying for years to try and get his dad to buy out Mills and Boone or have a formalized agreement or, like, anything saying who had the rights to what. Well, maybe his handshake just isn't good enough. Apparently. Maybe his dad just had a better handshake. Maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, once his father dies, Richard Jr. finally does what he'd wanted his father to do for years. He, first of all, makes Harlequin public. Okay. So what that means is other people could buy in right. and get stocks. It could be a publicly traded company. We're not going to get into the weeds of this because I don't think anyone cares that much. Nope. But he also moves the company to Toronto in 1969. Mm. So finally, 20 years later, Harlequin is no longer a, like, Winnipeg-based company. Right. But Ruth remains in Winnipeg as a secretary treasurer. Hmm. And they weren't really making enough in the world of book publishing, so Richard starts buying out learning material companies to try and, like, get Harlequin's value up. Huh. And you could buy a share for uh, $7.50 each. Okay. Uh, Mary Bonnie Castle got shares and was named chairwoman, and Ruth also got some money out of it. Mm -hmm. But they now needed staff that couldn't just be, like, Richard Bonnie Castle, Ruth, and one drunk guy. Was it virtually still those three people? Yes, for 20 years it was just (laughs) three people in a building. I love that the, like, the guy doing the printing is drunk, but still, like, apparently Extremely efficient. Yeah. Like, noted, like, this guy's doing a great job. Yeah. Also, like, Jack Jack Daniels is working for him. (laughs) It's got, like, a very, like, weird Mad Men feel where it's just, like, everyone's drinking in the office. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing's really making sense. <laughs> so they uh, hire their first president in 1971. They hire a guy named Larry Heisey, and he had actually got his start working for Procter & Gamble for 13 okay. years. He was from Ontario. He was a widower with two kids. It was trying to start a hosiery retail business that failed. <laughs> and then he gets a call offering to basically be the president of Harlequin. And during the job interview, he was asked about his failed business. And then Larry asked back why Harlequin was losing so much money. Yeah. And um, one of the Bonnie Castles hadn't noticed how much money they were losing. (laughs) So Larry gets the job. Okay. Because he's the only one who's paying attention to his company. He's the only person who's noticed that money exists. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) So he gets the job and then Richard Jr. takes a step back and then like, is not involved. He's as hands-off mm. as his dad was, with the exception of when he tries to publish a nonfiction book by a naturalist. And Larry Heisey goes, okay, you can do it, but not on the Harlequin imprint. We'll give it, We'll give you your own thing yeah. called, like, Richard Bonnie Castle Presents, and you can publish that, and we'll keep doing our thing. That seems like definitely the way to deal with, like, the, like, founders 
spoiled son, I feel like. Yeah. And at this point in time, also, Mills and Boone are finally purchased by Harlequin. They're bought out. They are now a subsidiary oh, of Harlequin okay. Romance. But uh, Alan and John Boone both kept their job with the firm. Like, yeah. things kept going for the most part as normal. Mm-hmm. But where Larry Heisey's kind of interesting is his experience with marketing changes the way the company sort of markets itself. Like, Harlequin had not done a lot in terms of marketing. It had just kind of existed. Right. And people read them because they liked the books. And once mm-hmm. you like a book, you keep buying more from that group. Right. And, like, they have a pretty identifiable, like, cover style with mm-hmm. a logo and a number. So, like, you you know that book. Right. But Heisey sort of saw Harlequin more as, like, a retail product, mm. like, soap or detergent more than he saw it as, like, a text. So he decided to market it more like you would soap. Hmm. So on Harlequin's 25th anniversary, the company begins running television spots in Calgary and across America. Book sales in those markets jumped up 79%. Wow. As opposed to 27% elsewhere. So the TV spots are working. And they start advertising... Uh, little network commercials during soap operas and game shows. That makes sense. Which are predominantly watched by women during the day. Because mm-hmm. at this point, still, we're seeing less women in the workforce than we are now. So yeah. there's still more women at home who can watch these things. And actually, a, compa- a campaign like that actually prompted the Winnipeg Eatons to relocate stuff in its housewares department to wow. add a new book station for Harlequin. Huh. So, like, it was doing well enough that stores were rearranging their displays to accommodate Harlequin. Right. That's an interesting... Um tactic because i feel like then you're not marketing or like relying so much on like is this individual book gonna sell no it's like the product is like the concept of the product is yeah. what's doing it right so um actually uh departments are in toronto had to restock their harlequin in- inventory three times in eight days because of these wow. tv spots like it's working mm-hmm. but what the tv spots are is kind of what you expect someone trying to market a book to women is <laughs> oh, no. it's like I've got kids and I'm tired, but boy, do I love to read. (laughs) But they make some more unusual moves. So um, they include books and feminine napkin packages or pads. Oh. So if you go and buy pads at the store, you might get a copy of Violet Winspear's The Honey is Bitter. Um, I love that, actually. Other books came with like Ajax cleanser and laundry detergent and Colgate products. And you can actually get um, products or books for free if you mailed in coupons from other companies. So like... I love getting, like, a free item with any purchase. I would 100% purchase the detergent that gave me the free Yeah, right? Like, if you buy some toothpaste and you get a free book out of it, well, why not? Absolutely. And then you buy the book, and there's a little spot at the back saying, here are other titles, order Mm -hmm. those, and then you've got readers. But they hit a kind of weird patch of trouble when they try and get 60 McDonald's in Canada to give out Harlequin Romance novels on Mother's Day. And a status of women's society in Cambridge pushes for a boycott of McDonald's. Oh, okay. Weird. I tried to look into this and couldn't find much about it, so I don't really know what the full story was. Huh. I feel like McDonald's is maybe also not the not the right place. No, but when you look at it, like, in the 70s, too, or right in the middle of, like, second wave feminism, oh, right? Yeah. When there's, I think, more of a push against, like, yeah. feminization of things, and maybe it seems kind of patronizing to yeah. be like, come to McDonald's on Mother's Day and get a romance novel. Yeah. But um, part of the boycott was to see if McDonald's would hand out the books on Father's Day also. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But um, Harlequin also just gave free books away with cosmetic products. Okay. So, like, it's going pretty well. They're doing, like, new and interesting things with marketing books that they haven't done before. Like, this is kind of unprecedented Mm -hmm. in how you market things. Yeah. But their biggest deal is actually done by a guy called Dave Sanderson. He's a marketing guy with Harlequin whose main job was getting Harlequin novels into supermarkets. 
Ah. So if you have been to a supermarket today, there is a book section. Yeah. And there's probably many Harlequin novels in that section. Yeah. That was not the case until the 1970s. Hmm. So before the 1970s, supermarkets weren't as big of a thing. They'd only really come to prominence in like the post-war era. Mm -hmm. But they also mostly only stocked stuff like TV guides or good housekeeping. They didn't sell books. Right. So Sanderson pitches an ideal to Loblaws in Toronto, asking for a little like... 10-store market test to turn a one-and-a-half square foot of space into sales for about $1,000 a week. And they're like, yeah, sure, why not? That's not that much space. Right. That's not bad revenue. So they would have someone come in, set up a rack, and restock books once or twice a week. And Harlequin were carried in with, like, women's magazines and good housekeeping. Right. And it was a huge success. And the racks evolved into plastic spinners called boutiques. Ah. And now we have so many of those. Um. Those were the ones that I hated refilling as a library page. <laughs> They're a huge pain. But mm -hmm. nice to browse through. It's not yeah. fun to put stuff away on. Yeah, actually, they're also like more like full shelving displays of books and magazines. Like that's become a much bigger yeah. thing. But Harlequin was the first book yeah. to be sold in a supermarket, huh. which is crazy. Yeah. And it's still done in Canada. It was a Canadian market test. And like we're going a bit further ahead here because we're not going to talk too much about like the late 80s and 90s. But um, when the Berlin Wall was torn down in 1990, staff from Harlequin's uh, West Germany office handed out 750,000 copies of Mills and Boom books to East German women who hadn't had oh. access to those books before. Oh, man, I bet they were pumped. Right? And by the 70s, they're printing about 400,000 copies of each new title. There's a new direct mail service in 1974, so you can basically get mail order Harlequin books. Right. And it was described as mail them out a new title each month and keep doing so until they stop paying or they die. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately for the authors, they only made 2% royalties on the book club uh. as opposed to 6% with standard retail sale. Oh, interesting. But as we go into sort of the 70s and the 80s, romance around them is changing. So Harlequin introduces a series called Harlequin Presents mm -hmm. or um, known internally as Heisey's Heavy Breathers. <laughs> and Presents is almost definitely a response to the publication of uh, Kathleen Woodwiss's book, The Flame and the Flower, in 1971. Okay. This is the first bodice ripper. Ah. So it sells 1.7 million copies in the mid-1970s, and it is a 430-page uh, erotic historical romance. Wow. And much like many other sort of raunchy things at the time, it is rife with sexual assault. Oh, jeez. But it kicks off this whole new genre of romance writing, which we still see today. Outlander mm. sort of is carrying this on in a very real way, right? So I haven't seen Outlander, but I will. It's a take it's a report. sexy period romance. Okay, yes. it's one of those, right, where yeah. it's like a beautiful woman and a handsome man having like intimate relations in a variety right. of places. Gotcha. Yeah, in in adventurous places. Yeah, or like Bridgerton's kind of similar to this too, which mm -hmm. I think you might be more aware of. I also really I also have not seen. I know you haven't seen it, but you're aware of it, yes? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> no, I'm never going to ask you if you've seen anything. I've never seen anything. <laughs> I just assume you've never seen anything. I've not seen a television. No, not once. You did lose your TV remote for how long? Several months. And where was it? Behind the TV. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't finish watching Columbo that whole time. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> so, The Flame and the Flower is a huge deal sort of culturally in the romance world. It sparks a whole bunch of other publishing companies to crop up, most of which die within a number of years. One survives, though, and that's Dell's Candlelight Romances, 
And this puts Harlequin behind in two areas, both erotic romances and historical romances. Okay. So Harlequin presents as a response to this and partially to the Boone's constant nagging to make the books a little more exciting. Right. Which was not really working because Mary and Judy were still around <laughs> and were still saying no. Oh, Mary. So presents is a little more expensive. It's 75 cents and not 60 cents. And unlike the other books, it has a different cover. Okay. So a Harlequin Presents book is a white cover with a close-up of the couple sort of in a circle. You can still see them today. Okay. They're still kind of sold like that. And these books also have the name of the author larger than the name of the title. Mm. So you're buying them more for who wrote it than what the book is called. Right. Which is still things you see with, like... That's pretty common. Yeah. With, like, Danielle Steele or James Patterson Yeah, exactly. The author is kind of the brand. Mm-hmm. So their first books were done by Violet Winspear and Hamilton and Mathers. And, um... Ann Mathers loves her writing. Okay. One time she was quoted as saying, good God, I tell you, honestly, sometimes I get so worked up myself, worked up myself writing this stuff that I don't know what to do. <laughs> so she loves her job and she writes these like slightly racier books and the Boons um, take a lot of credit for like pushing this on Harlequin because they were big on also saying, Harlequin liked to think that books were like soap, but they're not soap. They're books. Oh. <laughs> so, so there's some like internal feuding going on. Right, got it. With all of this stuff. And then one day, Richard Jr. goes out to renew the deal with the Boons by flying out to London to shake their hand. Gotcha. And they convince him to read part of an Anne Hampton novel. It's probably the only romance novel he ever read in his life. Jeez. And he liked it. And then Heisey, meanwhile, in Toronto, was actually going to get a market test of 400 copies for four novels. So Judy had approved two of the books and rejected the others. Oh, wow. And what he was trying to do was see which ones would sell better. Right. And, as it turns out, he was correct that the ones that Judy had rejected sold Mm. better. Yeah. And then past that point, they can start selling the racier books. Okay. They then also hire a guy called Fred Kerning, who is the uh, vice president and editor-in-chief, and he was a huge stickler for the rules. <laughs> so he becomes their editor. He would actually um, catch almost every typo, but would check airline flights to ensure that airline flights mentioned in books were accurate to those airports. Wow. This guy is dedicated That's to crazy. his job. And then he also notices that the Boons aren't editing. <laughs> So at one point, I love that no one except <laughs> except the printing guy and now apparently this man are doing their jobs well, with any competence. Mary and Judy are doing their best. They're publishing what they want to, but it's not what's selling. Yeah. And there's just like a handful of guys who are like, "Are you reading the books you're printing? Yeah. Why aren't read your books?" <laughs> so one of the things that uh, Kerner notices is that in one of the books, a woman walks the beach from Pasadena to her home. Or she walks the entire beach in Pasadena, which is a 16-mile walk every day. Wow. And he's like, uh, how? That's a lot. And then <laughs> um, later on, there's a point in the book where the hero beats the woman and essentially tries to drown her and then recovers. And he's like, at least give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. <laughs> so Kerner pushes for more editorial power because it's very clear yeah. the boons are not right. doing anything. There's no proofreading <laughs> happening. It's so hands-off. They're also bought out through the higher Kerner by a tour star who still owns them. And they start to publish internationally. Mills and Boone had been doing it for a while, but they start to push more into like Germany and France. And they had different imprints there. So in Germany, it's Jane okay. is the name of the imprint. But um, 
they would try and localize some of their books so like names would be germanized mm-hmm. but the english differences were so popular that publishers began anglicanizing german names oh, in other books interesting like it's this weird wealth of like influence that harlequin has over huh. so many weird aspects yeah. of like publishing in other places weird and then they actually move into japan where they sell books at subway kiosks huh yeah and then Ruth Palmer retires in 1977, okay. married not long after, and then it's up to these guys in Toronto. Yeah. And past that point, the history of Harlequin stays in Toronto for the most part, but they mm. come back to Winnipeg one more time. Okay. This is in 1978, and it's a it's a dramatic return, because this time it's a return on the silver screen. Oh. Harlequin made a movie. D- just one? Well, <laughs> you'll see why in a minute. Okay. So it's the first adaptation of a Mills and Boone Harlequin romance. And it's an adaptation of Leopard in the Snow by Anne Mather, who's okay. one of the like racier novelists who started publishing gotcha. a couple years prior. And the book is published in 1974, and I'm just going to pull this from the Goodreads description. Helen simply couldn't believe her eyes when, stranded in the snow in the wilds of Cumberland, she found herself confronted by a leopard. <laughs> but luckily, it was a tame one. And its owner, the mysterious Dominic Lyle, was able to offer Helen shelter in his house. Soon, however, the situation turned into a nightmare as she realized that he intended to keep her there virtually a prisoner and no one had any idea where to start searching for her. Okay. How could she get away? And as time went by, did she want to get away? <laughs> huh. Um, I, I'm not sure I understand the relevance of the leopard. He just has a pet leopard. Okay. <laughs> and he yeah. kidnaps women. Yeah. And she falls in love with him. Well, he's a hot guy, so he's allowed to kidnap women. I thought yeah. we established that. <laughs> this is the rule at the start, yeah. <laughs> he's a hottie, so he can commit crimes. Um, the film adaptation is directed by a guy named Jerry O'Hara, who didn't do much else. He uh, directed a movie called The Bitch. <laughs> okay. So that's the esteemed director, and they actually film it in London and The esteemed director in of The Bitch, got yeah. it. As everyone knows. They also get... Um, Susan uh, Penhalion, who is a star in British sitcoms and soap operas, and Dominic is played by Care Dulla, who is Dave Bowman in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh. So, like... I have seen that. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, like, kind of a well-known actor at the yeah. time. And the whole thing costs about $1.3 and there's some behind-the-scenes issues because the leopard on set does not like Dulla at all and, like, shreds his coat immediately. Okay, so maybe, like, if you're gonna make one movie... You don't make it one with an actual leopard in it. Yeah. <laughs> so he actually has a stand-in in every animal scene in the movie. Jeez. Oh, and the movie debuts in Winnipeg um, on February 3rd, 1978. And it's kind of done here as a nod to its origins. And <laughs> they really market the movie hard in Winnipeg. So they interview the producer in the mm-hmm. Winnipeg Tribune. And he gives this little speech about who the movie is for. And he's like, well, obviously it's for women, of course, but also for the movie-going population who were offended by sex and violence. There's no sex in Leopard in the Snow, only a scene where Della is clad in a towel and a sauna. It's not explicit, it's sensual. <laughs> I don't know that telling potential viewers, hey, don't worry, there's nothing sexy in this film. This movie, so chaste, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> okay, the tagline, though, is maybe the funniest part, because the tagline for this movie is... Remember when a good love story made you feel like holding hands. <laughs> so lame. Yeah, are you sold on this movie as a concept yet? Uh, <laughs> about a man who kidnaps a woman and there's no sex. I'm most excited about seeing a leopard, honestly. Yeah. 
So they pull out every possible stop. It plays in three movies at once. The Highland, King Theater, and Park Theater. This is a huge novel at the time. Oh, the Park Theater. Yeah. Um, so when Star Wars premiered in 1977, it played at two theaters. Huh. And it was still playing at one of them when Leopard in the Snow came out. Like, oh, it was wow. playing a year later. Yeah. And if you can believe it, the movie did not do well. Ah. Um, a Tribune film critic, uh, Joan Dannard, called it uh, Leopard Trapped in Deadly Dialogue. <laughs> she called it a joyless bore and wrote, The leopard gets so dull you might end up classifying the boners. <laughs> Which, of course, means mistakes. Yes. And not, like, you know. But we know we we all know what we're talking about here. Uh, Leopard in the Snow then made its way onto the worst movies of 1978 list in the Winnipeg Aww. Free Press, and I've watched the movie. Did you? It's really bad. Okay, so I'm having a hard time imagining what could possibly happen in it. So the thing is, not much <laughs> happens in it, as it turns out. Right. I watched it. Um, I counted about 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. Are just her wandering in the snow looking for her car. Okay. <laughs> in silence. <laughs> there is like weird 70s synth music, Go- okay. but no dialogue. The sauna scene is really weird. Okay. Is, so, is it sensual? I don't know. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> his tortured secret is that he's a race car driver whose brother was killed in a crash that he was in, and now he's got a bad hip and can't race anymore. Okay. So he's got, like, this manservant who lives in the house with him, who's just, and, like, oh. an old Scottish guy. Okay. It's the driver, the, like, helper, and then the leopard, and then she gets stuck there. Right. And she, like, finds him in the sauna, and he thinks that she's the, like, butler, okay. and is like, give me my massage. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and <then> just does. <laughs> and then they almost kiss at the end of that when he realizes that it's not who he thought it was massaging him. Imagine walking into a sauna. There's some strange man in there. <laughs> or do they know each other? They know each other. Okay. okay. She's been a, a captive in his house for an undetermined amount of time by this yeah, point. Yeah, I don't know. Still... She's tried to escape twice hmm. and has not been able to find her car. <laughs> she eventually does get out and then he traps her down. And she's like, oh, I do love you. And then they kiss and the movie ends. Okay. And then do they go back and live with the leopard? I guess we never know. No, because they kiss at her house. And we don't okay. really know, but it's it's so bizarre. Yeah. And I don't know. I watched it and then I was like, well, I don't really know like what the tone was like for a 1970s romance movie. Right. And I was like, I don't think I know any. Yeah. Um, I can't think of any. Well, Annie Hall is oh, one. Oh, yeah. But I don't like Woody Allen, so yeah. I'm not good. Um, and I feel like also like Woody Allen is not necessarily like the standard movie of the time gauge. No. Yeah. And also like probably not what I would say is the standard for like a romance movie that we think of today either. Yeah. And then, like, Grease comes out in oh, 1978. Yeah. But that's, like, it for romance movies that have carried on, like, culturally. Right. I can name a load of movies from the 80s. Yeah. Nothing from the 70s. Stuff from the 60s. Like, it's a weird blip where romance movies don't exist. I stand by my ongoing opinion that the 70s was just the worst decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We just, you know, it's forgettable. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it gets Star Wars and Grease and then, like, eh. <laughs> These are fighting words in Nick's house. <laughs> Star Wars. Eh. <laughs> so I almost wonder if like part of the reason the movie was so bad is that there's nothing to like build off of as like a reference today. Like the like visual language of a oh, romance yeah. movie is so similar and like yeah. there's so many romance movies based on books. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Twilight, Shades of Grey. Hey, I found a list. Of 70s romance films? VCR.com. 
See, I tried to look it up, and I got told that Saturday Night Fever was a romance, and I went, well, that's not right. But there's a sexual assault in that one, too. <laughs> like, no, and that does seem to be the standard. Like, there's the Goodbye Girl, there's Love Story um, with Ryan O'Neill, there's Stars Born, Shampoo with Warren Beatty and Carrie Fisher, um, The Alex Way We like Were. Heard I've heard of none of these Great films. Great Gatsby. Okay, but the Great okay, Gatsby was Gatsby a romance. What's it, up, Doc? That's a really good. I it's would more say of a rom com. Great Gatsby is a romance, but it was also written in the twenties. Well, here's the other thing that, like, what is a romance is kind of contested. Like, there's a romantic movie, but like a romance generally ends with a happily ever after. Oh yeah, okay. Which is what Harlequin does. Yeah, the Great Gatsby does not. No, <laughs> no, I would say it's famous for not doing that. And same with like A Star Is Born. Okay, it's a romantic movie, but it's not. A romance, kind of. Right. Well, he does walk off into the ocean. <laughs> or no. In that one, he drives his car and it, like, freeze frames. Like, he's, yeah. like, going to kill himself and crash his car. But Yeah, the various ways that a star is born has ended is very interesting. <laughs> Walking into the ocean is my favorite. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, like, it's interesting to think of, like, how romance movies have changed. Because, right. like, this movie bombs and it's not good. Yeah. But, like, there was nothing else. Right. It's funny that there's so many romance books and so few movies. romance movies. Yeah, it's interesting. Is it because women don't get to make movies? I don't know. Like, men make romance movies all the time. Yeah. Well, John uh, Hughes famously made how many of them? Elaine May made a few, mm. but they were, like, comedies with men. Yeah. Usually, like, a yeah. new leaf, maybe, but, yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, um, I also tried to look it up in... Google tried to convince me that The Godfather, Murder My Death, and The Spy Who Loved Me were all romance movies. Well. It's like, <laughs> there is a romance in Murder My Death. And I would but... say that most movies have some kind of romance yeah. aspect, but. Yeah, but like. They're not primarily romance movies. The 70s is a weird time for movies. Mm -hmm. And Leopard in the Snow is very, very bad. Do not watch it. <laughs> okay. But. Um, I might watch it. I can send you the link for it. <laughs> Thank if you. If you want to. <laughs> If you can remember any plot point and let me know about it, that would be great. I remember her wandering in the snow and the sauna scene and everything else kind of like a blur. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I guess they talked, maybe. Yeah. Um, They actually scrap all plans for future Mills and Boone Harlequin movies mm. after that. It does not do well at all. Oh, man. And then eventually Showtime makes a few made-for-TV ones in the 80s. That's kind of it for the, like, Harlequin cinematic universe. Right. But by the 80s things begin to change the bonnie castle stepped down and the romance market had changed so dramatically that things were a lot more different than they had been like 30 years ago there's 30 uh romances publishes monthly and then two years later about 100 published monthly only 22 wow. of which were by harlequin hmm. and harlequin starts making missteps including passing up on or passing on an up-and-coming author named nora roberts uh-oh they uh, said her work showed promise, but they already had an American writer on staff, Janet Daly. Oh, you only need one. You yeah. only need one American. Okay. Everyone knows. But here's the catch. <laughs> Janet Daly admitted later to stealing writing ideas from Nora Roberts. Like, she directly plagiarized Roberts' oh, work. So. And Roberts, if you're not aware, is, like, a hugely prolific romance author. She's done, like, 200 books. She's another one of these authors where, like, the name of her name will be bigger than the title. Yeah, exactly. So they pass on her. Mm -hmm. So she goes to a different publishing house. Right. And then there are what is called the Romance Wars. Mm. So um, for a while, Simon and Schuster was, were distributing Harlequin books in America. And then in the 1970s, Harlequin cancels their contract. In the words of Kerner, the guy who edited a bunch, 
Um, said it didn't matter who was distributing as long as the books made money. You could call yourself hunky, dunky, and schlunky and still make a profit. <laughs> so Harlequin gives Simon & Schuster three years notice. And at which point, one of their employees at Simon & Schuster begins planning. So losing Harlequin was a loss of about $45 million annually. Wow. So like, it was a big hit to not have them. So... Once their contract ends in 1979, Simon and Schuster begins a silhouette series with oh, staff poached okay. from Harle- from Harlequin. I've seen silhouette. Yeah, they uh, apparently stole Harlequin's entire five year plan. Oh no! And then they start playing dirty. Uh, that wasn't playing dirty. Okay. <laughs> oh no, it gets worse. They run a four million dollar TV and print campaign with Ricardo Montalban. Oh yeah. Who was Mr. Work from Fantasy Island, and then um, Senior 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 from Kim Possible? If you're my age. Okay. <laughs> Um, one of the taglines for these ads was, sorry, Harlequin, millions of American women are being unfaithful to you. Oh, no. Okay. They launched uh, 2,000 copies of nine novels before Mother's Day of 1980. The line was brimming with, like, old Harlequin writers. Right. Who would all jump ship. (gasps) But it had, like, identical cover art, similar illustrations, same placement of numbers and trademark, additional positioning of authors, and they looked visually very similar Mm. to a Harlequin. So it's not, like, a big leap for someone to buy one of yeah. those instead. Harlequin did sue them for this, and actually they had to change how they published. Their covers went from white to purple. Okay. And then uh, one of their editors, Kate Duffy, actually would approve writers that Harlequin had rejected. Mm. So they're, like, stealing so much from right. Harlequin in this process. And then there's Dell's Candlelight Romances, which is still around. Hmm. And they're coming back into the fray with a spinoff called Ecstasy Romances, and Ecstasy is actually created by Vivian Stevenson, one of the very few black editors in the industry. Hmm. And she's um, one who promotes bedroom scenes without the interruptions of other romance novels. So, like, not like a closed door or someone cutting right. in. I was just going to say that Ecstasy sounds racier. Yeah. So, uh, Dell sold 30 million copies of these books with titles like The Gentle Pirate and The Tawny Gold Man. <laughs> and then... Silhouette starts printing a line called Desire that had to um, warn readers how sensual things were. <laughs> and then Harlequin counters with Temptation and Super Romance. Okay. These are series set in America and finally meant to combat like Silhouette's domination of the American market. Mm. And like to be clear here, the reason that they only had one writer is that most of their authors were English writers who had written for Mills and Boone. Oh, yeah. So most sense. of their writing base are British authors. Right. So the American market's not really a target for them until right. Silhouette finally is like, well, what if we hire Nora Roberts? Right. And then Harlequin finally buys out Silhouette in 1984, but not before a number of very petty fights between executives. <laughs> um, so one person told a Harlequin executive to go to hell and then... <laughs> gave Heisey, the president of Harlequin, a crystal necklace in the shape of an S, either for silhouette or for his last name. <laughs> and then they go through like highs and lows in the years that follow. Harlequin is obviously still around, mm-hmm. adapting to different changes as they come. Now they've got like a bazillion sublines, like Harlequin Westerns. I think the one I read was a Harlequin Intrigue. Ooh. Yeah, they have like spy ones now and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which so, was why there was all the kidnappings, I guess. Yeah. It's intriguing, yeah. you might say. So yeah, that's sort of Harlequin and how they got to where they are today. It's a weird little story of like, yeah. marketing wars and romantic drama and started in Winnipeg with a line of incredibly bizarre, violent, thrilling novels. And a man who couldn't have cared less about it all. <laughs> Which is incredible that Harlequin is still such a big thing, considering... Just failed upwards. <laughs> and and every as, only, as only the wealthy can. <laughs> And also only because there were, like, three women in his life who cared. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so man. that's Harlequin. Thank you so much for listening. 
Uh, if you want to check out the book covers, our resources, if you want to read the book on the history of Harlequin, they go into more detail about the romance wars, about where Fabio gets involved in like romance novel modeling. It's very oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, you can check all of that out at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. If you want to follow us on social media, you can. We're on Facebook and Instagram at One Great History, and we're on Twitter as the number one great history. If you'd like to support the podcast and help me buy more Harlequin romance novels, <laughs> we're on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash one great history. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.